Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Needless with Three E's edition. It's Wednesday, May 17th, 2017. On today's show, Canadian Public TV and Netflix have teamed up to bring us Anne with an E, an adaptation of the classic and beloved Anne of Green Gables. Uh, the critics do not seem to like it, but did we? And then FaceApp uses super special secret technology to put a smile on anybody's pixelated mug. It creepily transforms your photographed face in any number of ways, apparently. And finally, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the perfect actor for a globalizing cinema. Now he appears to have revived, if only for a minute, the celebrity profile. We discussed the admittedly delightful GQ article, Dwayne Johnson for President by Katie Weaver. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. And uh, and Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey. Hey, Steven. And uh, just by the way, if I sound a little different today, it's because I'm recording on a slightly different rig. All right, moving on. Anne with an E is the new adaptation of the beloved 1908 children's classic Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This one is intended to be a gritty reboot, I'm stealing there the phrase from the Slate Review, of the story of a girl adopted out of orphanage hell and into rural paradise by an older brother and sister. Uh, this is a seven-episode, or it's on Netflix, and it's written by an admired veteran of the TV show Breaking Bad. That's a, a somewhat unexpected combo we will discuss, but first let's uh, listen to a clip. Follow me. Don't dally. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but there's nothing to be done. We want a boy to help Matthew with the farm work. A girl would be of no use to us. Do you understand? I can't say that I do. I beg your pardon? I don't mean any disrespect, but couldn't I do the farm chores even though I'm a girl? That's not the way of things, and you know it. But couldn't I? I'm as strong as a boy, and I prefer to be outdoors instead of cooped up in a kitchen. I don't understand the conundrum. For example... What if suddenly there were no boys in the world? None at all. Fiddlesticks. It doesn't make sense that girls aren't allowed to do farm work when girls can do anything a boy can do, and more. Do you consider yourself to be delicate and incapable? Because I certainly don't. Anyway, since I'm here now, couldn't you consider it? I could not. I'd put those fool notions out of your head. Come along. Let's get you washed up for supper. Julia, this book played, uh, if I 
uh, recall correctly, this book played a fairly large role in both of my daughter's life. It's a beloved classic. You cannot, you cannot read about this show without hearing how beloved this book was. Uh, what's your history with the material and what did you make of its use here? This book was also beloved by me. This book and its seven sequels, I think, or is it six sequels? I, I think there's remember. seven Anne books, yeah. yeah. Not all specifically about Anne. Yes, some about various attendant characters in the universe. But I feel like this seven-book cycle and the Laura Ingalls Wilder seven-book cycle occupy like a very similar place in my mind of books that center on charming, plucky heroines. Very different, but... Um, similar in how different they were from my own upbringing that taught you simultaneously about history and different locations and what even was Canada. Like, I feel like I learned a lot about the history of North America indirectly through both of these series while finding in the heroines uh, girls who seemed like myself. And to separate out the two, obviously the thing that is appealing about Anne to a bookish girl who likes books is that she's a bookish girl who likes books and whose uh, imagination draws really heavily from what she was reading in the late 19th century and um, is sort of romantic and daydreamy and yearning, but also very, very smart and good at school. Uh, and yeah. What a peach. Love that, Anne. And how, what did you make of the CBC Netflix uh, reboot? I just had trouble connecting to it. Like I felt like I was watching a car kind of rev its engine and rev its engine and try to get the thing to turn over. And somehow the mix of tones didn't quite take flight. As you noted in your intro, one thing that's different here is that the series really dramatizes Anne's woeful past, which is taken as um, a sort of tacit given in the series. It's alluded to the fact that she had to work since she was, you know, a, a infant practically, uh, that she'd been with potentially abusive families, uh, and that coming to Green Gables and the kindly brother and sister, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, who end up raising her, um, is like a real respite from a very, very tough life. But I don't know, there's, there was something about having these flashbacks washed in blue light of beatings and yellings and uh, squalling children in tandem with the poetical flights of Anne's plucky language as she's trying to describe the wonders she's seeing on Prince Edward Island that um, kind of made me like neither. Like I, I couldn't get lost in the goofy romanticism of plucky Anne because of the backstory. And I, I don't know, I, I did not feel that this was a successful adaptation. Hmm. Um, uh, Dana, what do you what do you make of it? Well, first, let me answer the first part of Julia's question, because I too regard this as a formative text of my childhood, I actually brought my childhood copy of it with me into the studio. So we have a dog eared we'll old post paperback a picture to, uh, of it to the consult. Facebook page. It's the same one I had too. it's like yellowed and crinkled. It's exactly what a beloved childhood book should look like. And it also has only one illustration, the little cover painting of Anne sitting waiting with, with her with her bag at the station. Other than that, there's no image of any character in the whole book. And uh, 
And I should say that as a kid, I never saw any adaptation of it. This is the first time I've ever seen a, a visual adaptation of Ant TV or a movie, and I never felt the need. I loved these books so much, and the physical descriptions in them are so precise and and sensorily accurate that I feel like I can picture all the characters perfectly and don't need to cast anyone in my mind as them. I have a very, very intense memory, actually, of being in the hammock in our backyard, reading this very book when I was probably the age Anne is in the book, 11. She's 13 in this in this version of the show. And just being as deeply immersed in it as a person could possibly ever be in a book. So I, I think it's hard to separate for me the question of would any adaptation be interesting or satisfying? And is this adaptation interesting or satisfying? I would agree that it's not. And yet it does have a lot of elements in place. Okay, I think we can pretty much all agree that the flashbacks were a bad idea. Even if you do want to bring more trauma to the surface than is on the surface of these basically lighthearted episodic books, to do it this way, as Julia was saying, with the shaky, blue-toned, handheld camera flashbacks that seem to be something out of Breaking Bad or some cop show or just a different visual world than the world of, of, of Anne when she's at Green Gables, that just seems like a foundational mistake to me. But other than that, it does have a lot of stuff in place. I think the young girl, Amy Beth McNulty, who plays Anne, is actually quite good. And it's a hard role to play. It's She she talks a lot. There are a lot of long soliloquies. She has to carry a character who could easily have been irritating. And she actually does bring out Anne's lovable qualities. And I think Matthew and Marilla, the, the, the couple, well, the brother and sister couple who adopt her are really well cast, too. And yet there's there's some there's some feeling of... I don't know, desultoriness about this, the pacing of this. It seemed to take a really, really long time to get through a little bit of story in the couple of episodes I saw and just never really to take off and fly. Yeah, I agree about Matthew and Marilla. I think both of those actors are really wonderful. I would say that part of my problem with this adaptation is that I did find this, Anne, a little bit irritating, uh, like... I don't know. It seems exhausting to hang out with this kid who's like forever talking in long sentences about how freaking beautiful the cherry trees are. But Anne is exhausting like that in the book. I mean, she has page long soliloquies about, you know, the lake of shining waters or, or whatever it is. And people are rolling their eyes at how much she talks. I yeah, no, I agree with Julia. I found the lead a little bit um, challenging. Right. And I thought that there was a degree of honesty in that casting and the, um, you know, the way that she's presented you're meant to see that the choice to keep her might not be the, the easy one. And um, I, 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 I recall loving the book as it was read to my kids while I drove and my wife sat in the passenger seat and they were in back and it was mesmerizing to them. And I found it mesmerizing as, as I recall, beautifully written. It was a book as a boy growing up in the 1970s. I did not encounter because of uh, more stark, maybe gender divisions back then but um i'm sure boys don't read it now either i really hope my guys read it i want to read it to them read it to them i hope they do and um but uh, one thing i did pick up a couple things one first of all prince edward island or wherever the shot looks exquisite right it's almost worth just sort of looking at it and the creator said she wanted it to look like a jane campion film it does look very beautiful and very and and, uh, uh, and rendered exquisitely and carefully um, without being too fussy or overly self-conscious. The story, the structure of the story, as far as it's in place from the book, is really impeccable. It produces pathos and suspense. You know, is she going to return? Is she going to be returned? Making her annoying has to be part of that, I think. Like, that choice should be hard in a way, but it, I just couldn't quite, uh, you know, connect with her, which I think you sort of have to do in order for the thing to land, um, land really hard. Uh, the one thing I would say, Julia, is that 
is that there's a kind of topicality to the ways in which the material was adapted and modernized, which is to say trauma seems to be a really big part of, um, uh, of this version of it, right? That she's had brute, not just kind of Dickensian, picturesquely Dickensian bad experiences in an orphanage, but brutal abusive ones. Um, and that maybe that explains the kind of daring choice to make her a, uh, seem like her loquacity is a function of being damaged. I mean, I think that's a really interesting idea. And much was made in the write-ups of this show that the creator, Maura Wally Beckett, is a veteran of Breaking Bad. And I just want to say, like, the fact of having worked on Breaking Bad does may mean that you are interested in bleaker things or something. But the storytelling here is not as sophisticated as the idea of doing an Anne of Green Gables reboot that elevates our perception of the darker aspects of her past. And there is just no storytelling subtlety in how they allude to or bring those things out or how they suggest that perhaps um, the the romantic yearning of her character is this desire to connect with literature because she's had so few people to connect with in her real life. Like, it is, it is interesting as a grown-up reader to look at Anne as a more complicated figure than I perceived when I read about her as an 11-year-old in my own hammock. And I did watch the beloved 1985 adaptation, which I think aired on PBS in the United States. And I don't know, I didn't have a chance to go back and watch clips before we spoke today. But that Anne, uh, I think, thanks to the writing, is a little bit like more classically charming and her obstreperousness hits a little bit more... Uh, you know, kind of like Joe from Louise May Alcott or something. She's just like a smarty pants tomboy and not quite so um, much of an earful. And I don't know. It's an interesting idea. But I just, the, the, it's not that I object to a grittier Anne. I object to this gritty Anne whose emotional timbre is rendered with no sophistication or subtlety. Well, there's there's another unsettled element besides the flashbacks that we were talking about, which is the feminism. And I mean, I think you could certainly make the argument that the original books by Lucy Maud Montgomery in that they are about, you know, an unusual young woman, an unusually intelligent and ambitious young woman struggling to move up in the world are sort of feminist. But they're certainly not chip on your shoulder, you go girl kind of feminist in the way that in that clip we heard you hear Anne explicitly saying, don't you believe that you as a woman and I as a girl can do anything boys can do? And it's just mm. so much nicer for that to rise up through the surface of the story rather than for the characters to be going around proclaiming it. Mm. All right. Well, it's Anne with an E. You can stream it on Netflix. There are seven of them. Uh, check it out, see what you think, and come tell us uh, all about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, before we go any further, uh, Julia, do we have some business? 
Yes, Steve, we've got a couple points of business. First, the Summer Strut playlist returns. And just in time, I will say I am still listening to my Spotify playlist from last summer, which was a good, a very good and enduring crop of struttable songs in my view. Um, But we've got a thread on our Facebook page now where you can post your suggestions. Again, that's facebook.com slash culturefest. Or you can tag us on Twitter with hashtag Summer Strut. So please start sending along your strut strut suggestions. I was trying to make a portmanteau word of strut-gestions, but it just sounds like sort of gross. <laughs> there you go. You did it. Digestive and medical. So never mind that summer strut. Hashtag summer strut. Uh, also on Slate Plus today at the very end of our show, we're going to talk about advice, the best and worst advice we've ever given, received, whether the practice of uh, giving advice to people is foolhardy or a important part of Human connection uh, will resolve all of that in several minutes after the end of our show. If you are a Slate Plus member, you can listen to that and also to an ad-free feed of this show and others. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, it also happens that now is the best and easiest time ever to try Slate Plus, especially for podcast fans. You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app, and you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus free for three months. This brand new app is by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. All right, Steve, what's next? Well, welcome back to the Uncanny Valley. It seems like we return there uh, once every few months on this show. Uh, it only seems to be getting uncannier by the second. Face app is an app that takes a uh, can take an unsmiling photo of you and make you smile, make it look as though you're smiling. It can also make you look younger or quote unquote hotter uh, and even flip the switch on your gender. Uh, I'm told, uh, Julia, why are we doing this topic? Oh, this is one of those periodic memes that has swept uh, the social Internet. Um, There have been over the past several years many different apps and gadgets you can try that adjust uh, your visage in various ways. I think some of the most popular and most familiar are Snapchat filters. So every so often Snapchat releases new filters and you can post a photo of yourself and have a wreath of flowers or Post a photo of yourself and turn into a bumblebee or, you know, it, it will kind of awkwardly morph your face to look like something goofy. And then you end up seeing images with those filters on them propagate throughout the web. FaceApp seems new and distinct in that the technology that powers it is more sophisticated. It's neural networks, it's, which I don't fully understand. There are that many, means. many tech articles about FaceApp credulously report that neural networks make it much, much, much more sophisticated. And I will, I have done a small amount of research and will try to explain what that means. I think my basic understanding is that something like a Snapchat filter is operating essentially like Photoshop. You kind of get the image and then they fuzz out the top of your head and put bumblebee right or i was gonna say bumblebee ears don't think bumblebees have ears <laughs> i guess they have antenna you know put bumblebee antenna or the flower crown like where the top of your head was what the face app app do you have to say the face app app <laughs> what face app purports to do is basically they've done uh through code an extensive set of research on a huge mass of images uh attempting to understand what characteristics of faces cause us to perceive them as male, female, older, younger. And then uh, its code sort of reads the image of your face and adjusts it according to what its computers or neural networks have learned based on these other images. So um, instead of saying like, hey, you'll look more like you're wearing a flower crown if we just put a flower crown on top of your head, uh, they 
do something a little bit more subtle and holistic to the image, which is say, based on an, a, a huge AI project, we understand that faces are perceived to be old when they are adjusted in all of these minute ways. So upload your photo, we will adjust it in minute ways, and you too will look old. So that's that's the underpinning of what FaceApp is. I will say the effect on social media is that people keep posting these collage shots of them looking like themselves, a little older, like the opposite gender, and a little younger, I guess. Um, and I find the adjustments like pretty unremarkable when they're of people that you don't know that well. Like everyone just looks a little blurry in all of the images. I found the overall aesthetic effect to be underwhelming. But apparently it's very compelling when you do it to yourself. So it seems like maybe we should face up ourselves. Already done, baby. My collage is awaiting to be gandered. Tech savvy Dana ahead of the curve <laughs> has face apped before Steve or Julia. All right, Dana, share. Share. Are you old Dana? Young Dana? I've done, boy I did, Dana? I did a collage of all three. I did. I feminized myself. So I made myself more female, uh-huh. made myself male, made myself old and made myself young. And all of them are fairly unremarkable, except for the fact that the male me looks almost exactly like my brother, which I guess should not be that surprising. But nonetheless, I found extremely unsettling. All right. Let's let's take a gander. <laughs> oh, my God. Describe your response here, Steve. Well, I'm trying to pick out which one is the real Dana. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, so this is boy Dana, young Dana, old Dana? Yes, yeah. and and extra, I guess, extra girly Dana. None of those is an actual original me. No, the top left is original you. No, because I put a female filter on it, so it somehow softened my face. It's like me with a department store makeover. No, that's just what you look like, Dana. <laughs> really? The top <laughs> yeah. left? I'm All right, sure looking that's... good. Top left, is, top left has not been altered. No, that's what you look like, Dana. I love it. Dana thought she had been improved in her actual photo of herself. Let me see. That's so charming. Look, you don't have a little yellow guy. The little yellow guy says how you've been adjusted, Ah, I think. you're right, you're right. Well, my first reaction is that that is not what old Dana is going to look like. It's made you, the the algorithm equates being old with being severe, slightly stern, and sending Anne back to the orphanage. (laughs) Well, we read in all the prep that this doesn't age you the way that, you know, one of those milk carton photos ages the kid. It's not a supposedly a scientifically accurate aging of your particular face. It's, as Julia was saying, a kind of average of oldness layered onto your face. You do look haggard as I'll get out. Like you are governing the governesses (laughs) very, very strictly. Back to the orphanage. Yeah. And baby Dana just looks very sweet. And then bro Dana does look sort of successfully bro-y. Is it weird to uh, encounter your bro self, or that's just what I'm, gonna, I'm certainly like? going to send my brother this picture and try to figure out if he can figure out what it is without telling him. Do you guys want me to face app you up? Yes, please. <laughs> so I just quickly put together the same exact grid for Stephen that I just made for himself. Switched his gender, switched his age to young, and switched his age to old. Put them all in a four square grid and uh, and sent them his way. Stephen, what do you think? Uh, well, first of all, the old Steve looks all of about two, maybe three minutes older. Than <laughs> uh, By the end of this segment, that's you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, uh, all of these are insomnia, Steve, but um, I, I, I find myself kind of foxy as a lady. I was going to say, you really transformed into quite the babe. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And then um, that little boy is... Uh, He's definitely milk carton material there. He's definitely like lunch money material. So it reminds me of my own past. I don't know. I find I find I'm a total primitive when it comes to photographs. I find looking at my own image so 
disorienting to begin with that um, none of these really blows me away, honestly. But I'm trying to see if there's something in common with what it did to my face and what it did to yours in terms of the A specificity of it. Stephen, I think your transformations were more radical than mine. Do you do you see that at all in looking at yourself? I do in a way. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Uh, Julia, what do you, you don't, Julia, surely you have a, an opinion about gender and age modified Steve. Nah, I don't, I, not a huge one. I mean, you look more like a lady. You look younger. You look older. I've, but I just find, like, as a thing that people have been sharing, I find all of these underwhelming. Like, they all just look like slightly blurry versions of people's faces. And I'm, I think it's one of those dynamics of social sharing where a lot of social sharing is driven by narcissism and strangeness. So if you can share something about yourself that's like a little bit goofy, and then there's a tool by which the people to whom you share can also share something about themselves that's a little bit goofy, uh, then you have the mechanism in place for a viral smash sensation. And that is happening here. And to people who know you intimately, like your fellow podcasters, like I'm modestly more interested in how your guys' faces morph here than in like the random person I don't really know on the internet. But it's, I, I almost think there's like a micro sharing sensation where like the people who know you best find these pictures kind of compelling. And then they share to the people who are most immediately close to them. And I, you know, we had a wonderful essay in Slate on our Outward blog from Ms. Cracker, who is a drag queen who writes for us frequently around the particular visceral compellingness of the gender swap pain, which I think is what you responded to too, Dana, that the gender swap one is the one that feels most surprising and and least like something that you could kind of imagine in your own mind. And that um, for someone who spent a lot of time, you know, using makeup and costume to look like a different gender, to have an app that can do it for you in more subtle ways is incredibly um, compelling and creates really complicated emotions that are are hard to put down. And I, I, I can totally see how that would be the case for folks. But as a like viral phenomenon, I sort of feel like the Snapchat filters are more fun, even if they're less technically sophisticated. Well, do you want to see what happens to your narcissism when your own mind yes, gets do, face Yes, do out? me, and then I will take it all back and say how amazing it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, it totally is more interesting when your narcissism kicks in. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely like Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? <laughs> Okay, let's talk about that effect. I completely agree. The only one of these I've cared about looking at so far that much is my own. Although I don't, I think Steve's probably transformed more than mine did. Julia, what is it about yours that compels your fixed stare right now? The older one looks a lot like my mom with like a different face shape, but it. Oh, wow. oh interesting. My older one looks nothing like my mom. It, well, I look a lot like my mom generally. Uh, I feel like male me kind of looks like a poor man's Ed Norton or something. There's like a bit of a <laughs> yeah. Male you seems like you could be some sort of some sort of a a, a hacker maverick type. Yeah, I I don't. I never really contemplated a male me. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we've realized that it's boring to look at your face at photos. It's only interesting to you to look at your own. It doesn't really seem like there's a heck of a lot to do with this beyond that initial blunt shock of, whoa, I'm a dude. I'm old. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And there was briefly uh, that you could make yourself hot, but then apparently whatever set of images or assumptions about attractiveness they the the computer algorithm used to make things images hotter made the terrific mistake of equating hotness with paler skin and more European features. So like any person of color who put their image in found themselves like whitened or lightened and lightened. And and so they first changed the name of that feature to Spark, which seemed like a weird response. Doesn't really solve the problem. <laughs> um, it's, it's the racist filter with no name. And then they deleted the filter entirely. Um, and the company has not been particularly forthcoming about the technology here. So it's hard to know exactly what set of mistakes they made that created that problem. But um, that just seems like it has to be tech bro bias just baked in at some very basic level. Well, and the company that made the app is Russian. And so who knows what the you know population was of the user base that or the image base that they were working off of when they made these. Can I say something about these, though? This occurred to me as we're making them and looking at them is that I don't actually find these images that uncanny. Steve started the segment by saying, oh, let's go back to the uncanny valley and visit. And certainly those apps that you were talking about, the Snapchat filters where people turn into bunnies and things like that, have an eerie, uncanny kind of quality. But these all look like photos, I mean, taken on their own. They look like they could be mugshots of a normal, any person walking down the street. None of them seem like a freakishly morphed artificial face. Yes. And that may be what's making it hard to talk about in a way, you know, that they're not they're not cartoonish and they're not artificial or robotic. They are just other normal human looking faces that have been generated from our faces. I think that's really apt, Dana, actually. I mean, I think that's part of what I was trying to say, which is like, how interesting is it to look at Reese Witherspoon's face like morphed three different directions when I've seen Reese Witherspoon's face for the last 20 years is that it doesn't the technical sophistication of these images is such that they don't actually look that weird. And as a result, the the subtleness of them is part of what's mesmerizing to people who know the subject intimately and the subject themselves, uh, his or herself, but um, make them a little bit harder to parse as like stunning, smashing images because they all just kind of look like people. I was like, why'd you post this picture of four people that look kind of like you in your feed, dude? Well, something that a lot of people have pointed out, and I'm going to try this out on my child when I get home, is that these do look uncanny and strange on children or babies. If you take a picture of a child or a baby, right, whose face is still sort of unformed in some of these features and, and start aging it or changing the gender of it, then you start to get something freaky. And people were posting those and they did send me into the uncanny valley. So maybe I'll send my daughter there and see how she likes it. Mm. All right. Well, it's FaceApp. Uh, probably listeners are familiar with it. But take photos of yourself, come to Facebook, post them, and come look at ours there at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Moving on. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Dwayne Johnson for president, exclamation point, is uh, Katie Weaver's profile of the highest paid actor on earth. I didn't know that. That was a surprise to me. Uh, In the May 10th issue of GQ, I think the best way to get into this segment, guys, is just for me to read the uh, uh, opening paragraph of it. 
when Dwayne Johnson meets you, and I can assure you he would love to, the first thing he will do is ask you 6,000 questions about yourself and remember the answers forever. If you're a child, good luck getting past Dwayne Johnson without a high five or some simulated roughhousing. If you're in a wheelchair, prepare for a Beowulf-style epic poem about your deeds and bravery composed extemporaneously, delivered to Johnson's Instagram audience of 85 million people. If you're dead, having shuffled off your mortal coil before you even got the chance to meet Dwayne Johnson, that sucks. Rest in peace, knowing that Dwayne Johnson genuinely misses you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. For Johnson, there are no strangers. There are simply best friends and best friends he hasn't met yet. I've known the man for only two hours and have been in his car now for only a few minutes listening to the Dixie Chicks headed to what he's luxuriously described to me as his private gym. And already it's apparent that I am Dwayne Johnson's greatest friend in the entire world. Juliet, what's interesting about this subject to us is that this is we'll probably talk about Dwayne Johnson further when Baywatch comes out. It's really not him. It's really the, the, the kind of careful, a highly ritualized dance between the subject and um, the journalist that is celebrity profiling. And I remember we did we did a segment on the state of the celebrity profile years ago. It might have even been the first year we did the show. And uh, we wouldn't have thought really to do another one since because in a way, the genre is sort of dying. Um, they're, they're only, you know, there's incredibly limited access, um, uh, sometimes none at all. Secondly, the nature of celebrity itself is changing. I think, you know, we're so familiar with people already through the forced intimacies of the internet. It just didn't seem to have anywhere to new to go. But um, Katie Weaver proved us all wrong. How did you do that? I mean, Katie Weaver is writing. She is like single handedly with the strength of Dwayne The Rock Johnson revived the celebrity profile from a slough of despond as uh, Anne of Green Gables might refer to it. (laughs) Um, the, The two breakout ones have been this one. And then about a year ago, I think she wrote a profile of Kim Kardashian that was similarly full of astonishing metaphors and observations, full of access to Kim Kardashian. Like she spent a lot of time with Kim Kardashian in Kim Kardashian's home. There was none of this sort of idle pushing around of lettuce greens on a plate and an anonymous L.A. eatery. And then a lot of speculation after that lead was dispensed with Um, in this profile with The Rock. Maybe we're not supposed to call The Rock anymore. But anyway, in this profile with The Rock, she uh, like works out with him at his private gym. She hangs out with him on the set of his HBO show Ballers. She watches him schmooze with Scarlett Johansson backstage. Oh, yes. She goes with him to a rehearsal for the Oscars, has enough time to observe that he sings his own song from Moana to himself all day long under his breath. <laughs> because it's just a really good song. Right. Like the 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 publicist management of celebrity in tandem with the rise of social media streams that allow celebrities to just connect with their fans directly without the intermediary of a journalist who might have the temerity to say something smart or critical or insert any kind of outside perspective on whatever message the celebrity is trying to convey have conspired to make the celebrity profile basically dead, which means that the only interesting ones are now kind of elaborate write-arounds where people spend no or very little time with the celebrity and then stitch a bunch of ludicrous theories onto the celebrity or sometimes interest. I mean, it's possible to do a smart uh, write-around, but more often you get like overbaked men's mag prose where the likes of Tom Genode or I forget the fellow who wrote the one about Margot Robbie, but that just sort of like go on slavering for paragraphs and paragraphs about how 
uniquely, specifically, world historically, unprecedentedly hot a specific woman <laughs> is based on vague generalizations about her like nationality and her particular way and mode of hotness, like the, the grand theory of the hotness of this particular body. Well, like there's just so many different bad versions. And somehow Katie Weaver has written two like in the span of American magazine making really fucking great celebrity profiles, I think, of two really pretty interesting cultural figures is just to be commended. This segment may just be like a brief endorsement for Katie Weaver and her profile writing, but I think there's a couple things that are happening here. One is that I think she's a really astute cultural critic who writes with a kind of colloquial grace and knack for observation and metaphor that... um, make her criticism and observation play sort of subtly in a nice way. And then two, she and her editors, I'm not sure who's um, orchestrating this, seem to negotiate for significant access to the celebrities and only do the profile if they really can get the access that amount to something that will be interesting to read. And good for them. That's mm-hmm. why I think this conversation is sort of hard to turn into how to write a great celebrity profile or let's all learn from this profile. Because between, as you said, the extensive access she got, which is very difficult to get, and I don't know what kind of leverage they have to to get it, and the particular subject she's interviewing here. I mean, I don't know how Kim Kardashian comes off in her profile, but you know, she also lucked out in terms of not meeting with some sort of closed mouth celebrity who's trying to utter a few vague platitudes and get the hell out of there. But she's with this person who seems to thoroughly relish every single moment of being profiled and lifting weights and driving around humming the Moana song in every moment of his life. So because he's this life force and this apparently steel trap memory having great listener and this really sort of unusual celebrity in relation to the person profiling him. He and Katie, during the time they spend together, seem to establish this relationship that is not the usual abject groveling of the powerless journalist before the all-powerful celebrity. The Kim Kardashian is one is really worth going back and reading, Dana. Oh, and I it, wish I'd read it. And it, it does have one thing in common with this, which it is, it is fundamentally praiseful. Like, it finds much to admire in Kim Kardashian, but it does that without selling its soul. Like it seems like a really interesting and astute set of observations about what has allowed Kim Kardashian to achieve the things that she has achieved. It is appropriately wry and skeptical about the value of those achievements while being pretty sincere in its appreciation of the amount of like particular personal force it would take to achieve them, whatever you think of them. Um, And maybe that's part of how they get the access is finding people about whom there are interesting, positive things to be said that can be said without mm-hmm. selling the soul of the journalist somehow. I, yeah. I have no idea what the brokering is that allows them to get this kind of hangout time, but uh, yeah. it, she really puts it to good effect. I mean, I feel like we should also admire the prose, which is doing some of the work. It's not like no other journalists get ever to hang out with celebrities anymore, um, but she's zippy in her stylings in a way that's really fun. Did you Did you respond to that aspect of it, Steve? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, no, absolutely. A couple things. One is that, uh, you know, I think the like the if the great age of credulity, celebrity credulity was roughly 1982 to 2008, you know, you're kind of in an awkward position. Wait, can, we, can we define those parameters? Is that some no. sort of agreed upon scholarly no. procession of years? No, I think uh, I think Vanity Fair was revived in its contemporary form in 82 or 83. So well, I'm dating it to roughly that. And, and I think the uh, the idea of 
you know, I mean, just think in the 1970s, you had singer songwriters and music, you know, JT, you went, you know, you weren't supposed to be in awe of James Taylor or um, Carol King in movies. You weren't meant to be in awe of uh, Elliot Gould or Donald Sutherland. I mean, whatever. I mean, there were certainly celebrity profiles uh, back then, but, um, uh, but, but, in, you know, there were two, there were sort of two ways to go during that great era of treating celebrities like demigods. One was, uh, you either insult the intelligence of the reader and you, inf- you continue the inflation job that, uh, has gone into making that person seem extra human, or you, um, you snark to undermine the person and, and kind of, uh, tear them down subtly or otherwise. And what I like about this is that, is that we're, we're in a period where, Treating them as extra human is less automated and Pavlovian. Um, they're objects of interest and resentment, so you're, it's still possible you might go one way or the other. But she gets beyond it completely by just being smart and breezy and kind of conveying what it's like to hang out with him without taking him overly seriously, but in a way that doesn't at all undermine or insult him. I mean, that kind of strain of DNA that was in the old New York Observer or the Gawker or whatever, where where you somehow managed to be both credulous and completely deflating at the same time. Um, she's just gone completely beyond it. Now, I will say that he's the perfect object for this because it sounds as though it's very fun to hang out with him. It sounds as though he doesn't take himself too seriously. I mean, there is the, the breaking news here is that he might run for president. Um, but... Um, uh, He's also global product, and she's smart about that in a way. Um, you know, she's mixed race, uh, and he. This is a great p- part right up front of the piece. He picks up on that in this very astute way, which immediately establishes is her establishes her as a character in the piece, but totally unobtrusively and organically. But also shows you how fucking sharp he is. She has she has not told him that she's mixed, and he says she says, "How did you know that?" And she said, "Because you you said your dad listens to jazz and you look mixed." Well, right? he doesn't so, just guess that she's mixed. He guesses that her that father her is, is her black yeah, parent. Yeah, exactly. Because she said something about his musical taste. So it just immediately, you know, it it puts you right there with her. Which is quite something, but he's he, but he is global product in a way, right? Like he's a movie star meant to sell as well in Sri Lanka as in you know Bayonne, New Jersey, and and um, so there's just something kind of deliciously large and non-specific about him and his affect in a weird way, and so she can celebrate that and give you the feeling, I and mean, that's the central thing that the profile does. It gives you the feeling of what it's like to be in the presence of this very magnetic guy but but non-specific guy right and so uh wait why is he a non-specific guy he seemed very specific to me really someone who's trying that hard to be uh likable to everybody and he is i'm not trying to supply snark where katie weaver didn't um at all he seems enormously likable but he's at pains to be universally likable which is different from you know, Frank Sinatra's caught a cold. Like Frank Sinatra's dangerous in that profile. He comes off as a fucking gangster and a really complex and and um, you know uh, uh, guarded human being. And um, I mean, that's the a famous gate to lose uh, profile of of Sinatra, and also a famous write around. It's Frank Sinatra has a cold, but he doesn't get the access there, and that's part of what's so famous about that piece, right? Um, and I I think that that allows for the fact that Sinatra was dangerous, connected, uh, and um, 
uh, and moody allowed for a certain kind of speculative and uh, fertile, you know, prose making. And the fact that Dwayne Johnson is like universally lovable and what you see is what you get. And like you can take him at face value allowed her to do a face value profile. Can I just read one passage to give an idea of how funny this is? This is this is just a laugh out loud moment. And there were several of several of them for me. Here's one paragraph. It's early on in the piece. At six feet four, Dwayne Johnson, while big, is not actually freakishly huge. It's his hands that translate him into something a shade more than human on screen. They're enormous, tan and broad with flat, clean, seashell pink nails. Each hand could comfortably lift an eight-year-old by the skull. (laughs) That is just such a great sentence. Each hand could comfortably lift an eight-year-old by the skull. I had a pang of writerly jealousy when when I read that. Question to you both as journalist and editor, can we learn something about how to write a profile from this Katie Weaver profile, or can we just learn that we wish we had such cool access and funny jokes? I mean, my my guess here would be there's something that makes a person a star, right? And and it's just a quiddity. It's like a it's it's this, you know, essence that they have. And if you could put your finger on it the first time you saw them or the first second they opened your mouth, that would just be how good looking they were or how talented they were. And it wouldn't be it. Um, And it might even be the opposite of it. It's just that unique personal essence that made them famous. And I think being famous is is, uh, obviously by the numbers a total rarity, but I also think it's hard. And I think staying famous is hard because most people's charm greats, even if it's uh, uh, kind of exquisite at first, it tends to go off. Um, So I think one thing a celebrity profile writer can do is without treating the person as if they're inhuman or, 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 or special in some bullshit way, as if they have like kind of inherent superpowers or something, you can spend time with them and try to put your finger on it. And that's what I think what she did in this instance, right? He is likable. I've seen this guy now in so many goddamn movies without especially, I mean, I don't seek him out. And if I didn't do this podcast, I might not. And yet I still find find him improbably charming and interesting and loved reading about it. And in part because she just... It was mimetically perfect. She reproduced what it is that's charming about him and his movies because it reproduces itself in real life, and she conveyed that without a hidden agenda. I think that's also very important. There's no peekaboo here. She didn't go in looking to undermine him or looking to please his uh, publicist or his studio. Yeah, I mean, the the kind of pyrotechnic look-at-me jokes in the writing of this piece are the kind that, in the hands of a less skilled writer— cause an editor to pull out the red pen the sort of like what is it like for me like self-deprecating workout jokes like that's a bad category of joke that's a high risk category of joke like my body's not as cool as the celebrity's body like that's hard to pull off um but she does it with such kind of breezy panache that it it ends up working fine it's one of those profiles from the example of which a bunch of really bad profiles will get written because the the writerly ostentation of it is the kind that is so hard to land with the elegance and finesse that she lands it. And she uses those jokes to do the thing that Steve is describing, which is figure out what exactly makes The Rock so charming that not only has he won our hearts on screen, he may also one day uh, sit in the Oval Office. And honestly, given the political moment we're at, the, you, you leave the piece being like, great, rock for president. Like, <laughs> I'm sold. Sure, do it. Dwayne Johnson for president, exclamation point by Katie Weaver. Uh, it's in the May 10th. GQ, check it out. It is very, very, very well done. Uh, all right, moving on.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? I like my endorsement because it brings together one of our topics from this week and an upcoming topic that we're going to talk about. I'm going to endorse Margaret Atwood's piece on uh, Anne of Green Gables, published on the centenary of the book's publication in 2008. Uh, you can find it in several places online. Uh, the place I'm looking at right now is in The Guardian. We'll put some link- links to it on the show page. But since we're about to talk about Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale and the adaptation of it for Hulu, it seemed fitting to uh, to send people to her write-up of, of the Anne books. Like most readers, she is a fan of the Anne books, and she talks about having read them as a child, then reading them later to her child. She talks about traveling to Prince Edward Island to visit some of the many Anne-based tourist spots there, and uh, and also talks a little bit about Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author of the Anne novels, uh, difficult early life and the similarities to, to Anne's own life. She was sort of a semi-orphan herself and was brought up by a stern older couple and had quite a bit of trauma in her early life that she works out in the books. It's, it's also not known for sure whether or not she committed suicide. She seemed to have died of natural causes, but she also left a note that sounded like a suicide note and was certainly a person who had suffered depression in her lifetime. All things that I didn't know before reading Margaret Atwood on Anne of Green Gables. So the piece is called Nobody Ever Did Want Me. It's by Margaret Atwood, and we'll put a link to it on our show page. Oh, man, I would love to read that. Um, Julia, what do you got? I have an endorsement this week, which I'll get to in just a moment. But before I do that, I want to wish a very happy birthday to Aaron Shield, who turns 40 today, May 16th, when we are recording, which is also my dad's not 40th birthday. Um, so happy birthday, Aaron Shield. We are so glad that you like listening to our show along with your husband, Reginald Harris. We hope you do something wonderful and awesome to celebrate. And we should also know that in the lovely email that Reginald sent us requesting that we wish happy birthday to Aaron, he did note that sometimes he recommends that they check out a cultural item and that Aaron does not accede to that request until we recommend it on the show. <laughs> so so Aaron, just have faith that uh, Reginald knows what's up. And maybe next time he suggests you watch something, just ju- just check it out and, and don't I'm, wait for us. I'm glad to know we can provide bludgeoning leverage in a relationship. That's always a happy birthday to, to you both. Have a great dinner now that we've put that on air. All right. Uh, on to my endorsement. I would like to endorse a new book from Justin Davidson, who's the architecture critic at New York and a uh, at least one time guest on this show and just such a great writer about both architecture and music. The book is called Magnetic City, A Walking Companion to New York. And it is sort of a walking guide, like it does suggest a few walks that you could take, but it's really a series of essays and meditations on New York and how its landscape evolves and changes over time and how the people who live here feel about it. And any person who loves thinking about New York and the way it looks and works and is and all of the forces that cause it to be the way it is and look the way it looks should definitely, definitely read this book. Uh, Just one passage here about the new stick-like skyscraper, 432 Park Avenue, which if you have been to New York in the last two years, you will know as the impossibly ruler square rod on the east side. Um, 
he describes how people really hated it when it was going up, but now a certain set of people have come to like it. Every iteration of the New York skyline is an abomination to one generation and an inspiration to the next. He's just one of the best critics of architecture going. And this book is terrific. Magnetic City, A Walking Companion to New York. That sounds wonderful. It's fantastic. All right. Well, mine is crushingly banal next to yours. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it means uh, something to me, which is every few years or every few minutes, I have to go through a midlife crisis in some new oblique and completely unexpected way. And recently, uh, the latest one is listening to Neil Young, whose music, I guess I've always sort of admired. I mean, he has a couple of albums I love. Uh, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere and On The Beach, I think are both just incredible records. But um, there's a live album of him, sort of solo acoustic, most of the time on the guitar, some of the time on the piano from 1971, which is right before his really groundbreaking record Harvest came out. Um, and he's just doing a lot of that material alone. It's alone. It's called Live at Massey Hall. Uh, doing all of the, really all of his all, a lot of his uh, uh, song catalog, um, uh, but also the stuff that was on that forthcoming record. And it's just it's just a it's just an incredible record. I mean, I really I would really push it on anybody, regardless of what their current state of their Neil Young feelings are. It's real. It's just real lonesome shit. It's just really lonesome shit. And he's he's a funny he's a funny songwriter. He's he's really he's building stuff out of kind of funny timber. That guy, both both personally, but just structurally, like the you know the cording and the you know it's just it's it's. I don't know if I have anything more profound to say about it other than that, other than listen to it and give it a chance, no matter what sort of you feel about him. Uh, I think it goes up there with one of the great solo live sets I've ever heard. Anyway, live at Massey Hall, Neil Young. Curious to know if anyone else out there shares this particular uh, taste. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. And we should say next time from Australia, right? We're going to do our two shows in Sydney and Melbourne, and we will be on an incomprehensibly long flight during the time when we would typically record next week's show. So Forrest Wickman and Laura Bennett, Slate's Culture Editors, are going to ably host uh, a bizarro gab fest. And then we'll be back with two Antipodean shows. So see you from down under next time. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And the managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at panoply.fm. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon. Oh, man, look at my life, 24, and there's so much more. Live alone in a paradise that makes me think of two. Love lost such a cause, give me three.